Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckocrats? What the fuck publicans? And the what the fuck nicks? Of course, the protest folks. How's it going? What's happening? The what is it, Did I ever say what the fuckies? Why haven't I not said what the fuckies? I must have said it somewhere. Anyways, how are you? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I hope you're doing okay. Uh, today on the show, Jason Manzukis. He's a comic actor, and uh, I didn't know anything about him. You can also, well, I did know things about him. I'd seen him in everything, but then I also know he did the podcast, How Did This Get Made with Paul Shear and June uh, Diane Raphael. I knew that, but uh, I didn't know what he would be like, but he's a fucking great guy. Fucking great guy. Nice guy. Solid present and he brought me a gift so right out of the gate i was like wow this is all good surprises so he's on the show jason manzukas uh, you'll hear me talking to him in a few uh one thing i did want to say right here at the beginning is i know because of glow the gorgeous ladies of wrestling a show which i am on and i'm still getting um beautiful and uh very um i i'm very grateful for the feedback i'm getting i i had no idea uh, that it would turn out to be so amazing. But uh, there are a lot of new people here listening to this show. So I'd like to uh, invite you. I'd like to invite you to check out the more than 800 episodes in our archives. Uh, you can start a Stitcher Premium membership today. You can go to stitcherpremium.com slash WTF and then use the code WTF for 20% off. And then you'll have access to, as you, I, I don't know if you figured it out yet, the most recent 50 are always free. So that means that every episode is up for public consumption uh, for, you know, six months. And then they slowly go behind the, uh, the archive wall, which, as I said, is available at Stitcher Premium, except for the President Obama podcast, which is always available, always uh, evergreen and always uh, a, a bit soothing uh, if you're of a certain ilk. So that's there. But I just wanted to give you a heads up because I know a lot of you are new to the show. Some interesting questions coming at me because of my performance in the uh, the Netflix series Glow. Uh, one that I seem to get a lot is like, hey, man, did you start smoking again? Did you start smoking again? Sam Sylvia, your character is smoking all the time and doing blow. Did you start smoking? Did you want to do some blow? How, how did it feel to do fake blow? 
I, you know, and people ask me, what is the blow made out of? What is that blow? What, how do they make fake blow? I'm not sure what it is, but I think it was uh, something they added to real blow to make it uh, less real. I think it was one of, I don't know if it's, the, I don't know if it's Manitol or Sorbitol or one of them. I don't, I don't think it's the one that makes you shit, which I think is Manitol, but it definitely is one of the talls. And it's definitely something that they put into, you know, good blow to make it less good blow. So did I want to do blow that, uh, you know, after, you know, chopping those lines and rolling up that bill and you're taking it out of my pocket and doing a bump out of the bindle with the top of a big pen. That's like, that should be a lyric. I'm doing a bump out of the bindle with the top of my big pen. Pow. That was a, a very mild pow followed by a slight sizzling noise. It would have been much more exciting. But the weird thing is I did not. I uh, did not. Uh, I was not nostalgic for doing blow. I did not want to do blow. And I did get a little bit of a drip, but it was a very unsatisfying drip. You know, there was nothing. There was no payoff to going. <laughs> There, there, just no payoff, no nummies, no, you know, like throat nummies, no, uh, like, you know, little, little kind of like secondary auxiliary bump from the, uh, collection of, uh, Coke goo in the back of your sinuses, nothing like that. It was just the, uh, it was just the action. It was just the, uh, the ritual of doing it with no real satisfaction. I believe that the first time I did a little of the fake blow, I did, uh, I got a little, uh, placebo jolt from the fake blow. Uh, but no, did not have any desire, which is a testament to uh, sobriety and to the understanding of uh, what it is to be powerless over drugs, powerless over alcohol. The knowledge to know that if I do this shit again, it's probably not going to stop for a while. It's not going to be pretty and it's not going to take me any place new or good. As for the cigarettes, did not want to smoke cigarettes again. I, I, it was amazing how, how easily that shit comes back to you. It is like uh, riding a bike, <laughs> riding a, a, a very dangerous bike uh, that, you know, that you, you doesn't take any physical activity uh, and uh, eventually just becomes a shitty drain on your life. But uh, yeah, I did not want to smoke. That's partially because I still do nicotine lozenges and I'm kind of buffered from that. So there's the answer to those two questions. If you have more questions about Glow and the character of Sam Sylvia, feel you can email me anytime. So I haven't done this in a while. I'm going to read a, a couple of emails. This one is for Pride Week. This uh, just says the subject line is Patrice and gay stuff. Hi, Mark. First, thank you for being a true voice out there in this sea of bullshit and lies. Second, Pride Month is coming to a close, and I've been reflecting on my own gay shit lately and the people who encouraged me to come out knowingly and unknowingly. Patrice O'Neill was one of those people. My interactions with him were brief but significant. I've heard you mention him often, and so I wanted to place this story out there in the world just to say thank you to him wherever it is we go when we die. When I was in my early 20s and not out. I was an assistant to a comedy manager in New York City. We managed Patrice O'Neill and Bill Burr and a few other folks for a brief period of time. Patrice was brand new and my boss knew he'd be big. Patrice saw me and within 10 minutes, matter of fact, he declared me to be gay. It was innocuous. I can't even remember the context. It may have even been, uh, quote, so are you going to gay pride? He took one look at my dewy eyes and well-coiffed hair and knew. I think most people did, but he said it out loud. It wasn't mean. It wasn't hateful. It was just a true, curious observation. 
I feel no ill will, but it left me stunned, not because I felt attacked, but because I felt accepted, even though I hadn't accepted myself yet. I don't know his politics or how he felt about gays behind closed doors. There may even be tapes of him hating on the faggots. I have no idea. What I do know is that it helped me along in my self-acceptance process, that he could be so nonchalant about something that provided me with so much angst for so many years, gave me a moment to breathe and the courage to take the steps to fully embrace myself. After that, he fully farted in the passenger seat of my 1993 Ford Taurus. It was so bad, I had to do a spot check for possible remnants. This was both the blessing and the curse of driving him to a gig. So I wanted to thank him in some way and figured you could deliver the message. It's been many years that I've been out and proudish. Uh, Gays do just as much stupid shit as the rest of us, right? Gays for Trump can suck it hard. That was in parentheses. I have him and other people like him to thank for making the transition much easier. Thanks, man. Keep doing the good work you do. Sincerely, Tom. So, Patrice, if you hear this man, he thanks you. I miss him, man. Patrice was a powerful guy. And, uh, man, yeah, he's one of those guys. Him and Geraldo. I, you know, I just some days I'm just like, fuck. I miss him. I miss running into those guys when I go to New York. We'll get to Jason Manzukis in a minute, but I wanted to read one more email. I like this one too. This one's got a nice narrative arc to it. Subject line, the other man was you, Mark. And when you see that subject line, there's a moment where I'm like, oh, fuck, what did I do? When did I do it? And am I going to get killed? That's what that subject line did to me. The other man was you, Mark. I was completely ready to be like, oh, fuck, I remember that. But I was pleasantly surprised. Here we go. Mark, I have to say my first contact with WTF was shrouded in a curious mystery of who the fuck is this guy and what the fuck does my missus want with him? You see, way back in 2010, my wife and I split and I was staring down the bottle of marriage number two over and done, except different from the first one ending. This time we had a kid to consider. I was dark as all fuck on her for her slight indiscretion, but you know, I had one too that I paid no heed to. I was all about fuck her for this and that. In other words, I was behaving like a typical cuckold ass. But anyway, you came up because after some months of living in separate homes and lives, etc., I asked her what she was up to and if there was anyone she was interested in. She replied casually, I've been getting into Marin. I asked who the fuck Marin was and she said Mark and that was that. I was livid. Leaving nothing further explained, I spent a few days fuming on who the fuck this Mark Marin was, and I was all over the who's, what's, where's that we go through when building a mental concept of some fucking guy bawling my ex-wife. It wasn't until a week or so later I tentatively approached the subject with her of the new guy when dropping off the little boy when she said you were on a podcast called WTF and I should check it out. Now you became the guy with a podcast that my ex was riding, and I thought, who's this pretentious twat? with a radio show anyway it worked out well as i finally got into checking out the other guy listening into the podcast bro realizing how i'd concocted the whole thing in my big stupid head and seven years later i'm still tuning in weekly and as it turned out though my time separated was doused in drink i was listening to the other guy with similar shit to deal with and you mark turned out to be the guy who helped me get through it Thank you for that, Mark. My gorgeous ex and I spent four years apart before figuring out we were idiots and got back together. And 
yes, in some ways you still are the other guys when we are listening in together or watch your stand-up or now watch you on Glow. She turns to me and says, Mark is still my silver fox. Huh? Happy ending. Cheers for the years, man. Sincerely. Fabian. That's from Australia. That's a good story. Right? That worked out well. I'm glad. Thanks, pal. Glad to help out. So Jason Manzukas, oh, I mentioned that he brought me a gift, but here's the thing, like, you know, I, you know, I, I always have people come over and they do these things, they talk to me and, uh, you know, some of them know the show, some of them have listened to the show because they're going to be on the show and, you know, yeah, occasionally things, people bring me stuff that, you know, they're promoting or whatever, but, but Jason Manzukas, who I've met a couple times, who I do not know, brought me this record. It was a, a reissue of Mingus, uh, um, Charles Mingus record. It was a nice piece of wax nice vinyl record and i had just gotten the original one that was a little beat up so this one was sort of like it was some sort of sign that i had to really get into this and i he just you know he knew i was getting into jazz you know he knew i was a vinyl guy he brought me this record that had a, 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 a had meaning to him and i listened to it and it's really one of the greatest jazz records you know ever i texted him after i listened to it twice i said it's all here man the whole history of the whole thing is on this record and it was just thoughtful and it was very nice and I had no idea what we were going to get into. You know, I know like, you know, he's in this new movie, The House with Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler. It's in theaters tomorrow, June 30th. I knew he was on the podcast, how this get made, but I didn't know him as a person. And we had, I just, I love talking to him. So this is me and Jason Manzukis. Uh, enjoy. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Boy. You're such a music freak. How, do you have a lot of records? I do have a lot of records. Yeah, I do. Have you I haven't them? counted them. I don't know how many, but like I... It's not that it's a, you know... A, but a, I have a, a ton of... I also did a thing where at the, like right, like through the end of college and through the years after college, yeah, I went around and just bought people's entire record collections. Yeah. So I also have like... But just people at school? You're just a guy going like, hey, you going home? You taking those people records? People at school, but also just like um, at yard sales and flea markets, at any place that people were selling stuff. I like I have I don't know probably 478s really just because I bought them all from one person now wait do you house them somewhere they were <laughs> up until <laughs> yeah yes Mark I do right now unfortunately <laughs> I up until a year ago I still had my apartment in Brooklyn uh, that I kept all this time and so it all lived there 
Oh, really? They all a, lived in, in a Brooklyn apartment? And, and so then, when people say, can I stay at your apartment? You're like, no. My not. records are staying there. <laughs> all of my records and, and books are there. That was my big thing when I moved to LA. I was like, no records, no books, clean. I want to live Feels minimally. Feels good, doesn't it? It does. My house is now full of records and books. It is. Yeah. Not the ones from Brooklyn. Nope. Although those have now made their way, but they're in I a storage to, locker. I had to pull back because, well, the fascinating thing to me is that there was all this stuff... I grew up in a mainstream way, really. Yep. So, you know, I had a couple of people in my life that turned me on to things sure. that were outside of the box. But it was you don't really realize until for me until like five years ago how 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 small my periphery was. Sure. And there's all this other stuff. I may not like it, yep. but there's stuff that exposure for me is huge. Like mm-hmm. uh, the like I would say one of the most transformative people in my life yeah. truly was uh, a guy named Steve Barrett who I started taking drum lessons from in suburban Boston when I was 10 years old. Yeah. And I took drum lessons with him for until I went to college. Really? Know? So, whatever, eight, nine years. Yeah. One of Steve Barrett's rules for taking drum lessons with him is every week you had to show up with a blank cassette. And over the course of the lesson, he would record two albums for you of hit from his record collection. So you were at his house? Always at his house. Yeah. And so... Every week I walked away with music. Yeah. And it was... From age 10. From age 10. So, but his taste was... So I'm like a 10-year-old being yeah. given like all the King Crimson records. Oh, like wow. all of 70s progressive rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From that to like uh, uh, all reggae. He got yeah. super into reggae at one point. Right. So I was like a 12-year-old who got obsessed with reggae. Right, right. You know, like yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah. Like yeah. My, my record collection, what I was, my, what I was digesting was so diverse... It was crazy. Now, when you were doing that, it was, so you wanted to be a drummer for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you can do for it. Sure. I imagine you're still. Good I'm at okay it. now. Now I'm just fine. You know, like <laughs> I was very good at it. Yeah. For those years, like yeah. through college, but at uh, right, like in my twenties, I stopped really playing. So when did you like? Where you grew up? Where? Outside Boston. Which which town? Nahant, Massachusetts. Nahant. Nahant's like a uh, North Shore. Oh, okay. Um, it's like By Marblehead? Yeah, uh, yeah. just before Marblehead. It's like an island off of the coast of Lynn, actually. Off of Lynn. Off yeah, of yeah. Lynn, connected by like a causeway. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's 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 closer to Boston. Yeah, it's like than, seven miles from than Boston. Than Marblehead. Yep. And that's where you were born and raised? Born in, born in Lynn. Uh, technically, we sure. lived in Lynn when I was born, but very quickly moved to Nahant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know that area from doing stand up yeah. there. So, like, what, what, what kind of family? What'd you, you're, what are you? I'm Greek. All I'm Gr- Greek in origin. Like, my parents are Greek. They're all Greek. Yeah. Like, they yeah. speak Greek? They do. Uh, oh, they do. They, um, they first generation? My dad, born in Greece, yeah. uh, comes over as a kid. Yeah. My mom, born here to Greek parents. What was, uh, what was the family business? Family business was my dad. My dad worked in healthcare. He worked in hospitals for many years, and then he started his own, as like a very kind of you know, um, immigranty kind of entrepreneurial. He uh, owned and operated like assisted living facilities and nursing homes in New England, in like the Boston area. Oh, so he's a good-hearted guy. Great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. And that's that. that, that like, my first jobs were, I worked as the assistant to the handyman in like a, a nursing home, you know, like that, those at like age 11, 12, doing like painting the railings or whatever. Like, but you that did, was my. But you're around a lot of very old people. Very much. And a they, lot of old people for a long time. And it wasn't scary. No, no, it wasn't <laughs> scary. <laughs> that is like, that says everything. 
That's it. Yeah, that's it right there. Um, yeah, no, it was it was good. It yeah. was like it was like um, an well, interesting. You, thing. Well, you seem like a, a well-adjusted person. I think so. We, and do you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister. Yeah, yeah. She lives in Maine. Has two kids. We're in Maine. She lives outside Portland. Oh, yeah. So all right. So you're growing up there. Yeah. You're going. Lynn is like. Lynn isn't that by Cambridge, really? A little east or like. No, it's further north. You basically going north know, I, up through like Quincy, right? Uh, Revere, oh, Winthrop, right, right. Revere, like all those Revere. towns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, Revere basically goes right into. Lynn. How'd you get out without uh, sounding like that? It pops up. It, you'll, you'll, there's the, at some point over the rest of the day, you'll be like, there it is. You'll be like, there it <laughs> the is. little thing. There's weird words that I'll say. Um, a lot of them are like, I'll say popcorn or hot dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a very Boston-y thing. Uh, or it'll come out like with the words like worry or sorry or like people will sometimes be like, are you Canadian? And it's really just like adjusting <laughs> around the accent. Yeah, yeah. I never, also yeah. my parents. No, I'm fighting Boston. Yeah. <laughs> my parents never had solid accents. Like I didn't grow up in that accent very mm -hmm. heavily because both my sets of grandparents spoke Greek or didn't have that accent. And so my parents didn't get it. And so I didn't get it as much. I got it socially. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But like I would think in, in school, like, you know. Yeah, yeah it was certainly there. I could do it. By, like, uh, you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you could do it. I can do it. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I never had it as heavy. Yeah. It really was just certain sounds or certain words. It would be like there. Yeah. You know. So so when you're when you're going to school there and you so early on, you're like, I'm going to be a drummer at 10. Yeah. You, that was your decision. Yeah, well, my parents said uh, we you, you have to take um, lessons in an instrument. You can choose the instrument. Yeah, I chose drums. Yeah, um, and and loved it and was immediately obsessed um, with just like every element of it. So you go through high school doing that? No theater, no nothing, no, no comedy. Uh, no uh, comedy in as much yes comedy. Um, no theater, uh, but it, in junior and senior year, I went. I also like Leslie Stahl, recent guest of the on your show. I went to Swampscott High School um, because uh, my town was too small to have a school system beyond yeah. like elementary school. Really, it was too few kids to support it. Yeah, yeah. Nahant's the smallest town I think in Massachusetts. It's yeah. like a one square mile island. So you knew everybody. Oh, beyond you knew everybody. Island people, but it's not like it's not like Nantucket. It's not like Nantucket because it's not a vacation spot. It's not a... But are you really on an island? Are there, is there island mentality? Sort it, of like a little too insulated? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Very much so. <laughs> yeah. It's also much smaller than all those other islands. Right. You know? So it's not just small. It's wildly isolated. Yeah. So you it had felt like, a... like, to me, like as a child... I, I go back now and it, it could not be a more idyllic Norman Rockwellian oh, yeah. kind of beautiful coastal New England town. Right. As a child, it was like a prison. Right. It might have well might as well have been like Alcatraz. But, but, like out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> Why are we you here? can't go anywhere. There is no other towns. There's no stores. There's nothing. But you knew the town drunk. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Know, everybody. Yeah. yeah. You knew everybody and everybody's business and everybody. It was it was that's the time. That's what it was. Uh, you know, it was very much like that. Very Mayberry in that way. Because it was also had a little bit of a frozen in time nature to yeah, it. Like yeah. it was not, there were no stores. Were there, there other no, Greeks? No, no, there were no other Greeks. It so, was all waspy New England. You know, like I was like, we were like a minority family. Right. As, as, as Greeks who are <laughs> European, of European your, ancestry. Your last name. Oh yeah. Where are you from? Where are you? From? That's my favorite. Where are you from? Where are you from? Suspect. Jason, where are you from? Suspect. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. yeah. So, but the uh, what about the comedy? Swamp oh, Scott High so School? junior and senior year, every the classes would put on 
a variety show. Yeah. And so me and my friend like wrote all the comedy sketches for those years of variety shows. Uh-huh. And so that was for me like and I was like obsessed with comedy. Yeah. Like I was like a, oh yeah, no I was a kid who was obsessed with uh like sketch comedy. I yeah. was, uh, like I listened to like you know the I would mow the lawn to like the first Stephen Wright tape when it oh, came yeah, out. Sure. All those guys right. I was aware of, but I li- I watched SNL every yeah. week. I was like that when Monty Python started airing on PBS, it was like huge to me. Yeah. You know, stuff like that was. So it was planted. Yeah. Oh, that's what yeah, I was it, really. So that when I got to college, I immediately. I heard it. I heard it. What? Got. Yeah. When I got. When I got. When got. I got. When I got to college. When I got, when I got to college. <laughs> Mac, let me, t- let me tell you something, Mac. When I got to college, these college. fucking guys. When, you when got I to got college. to college in Vermont. <laughs> yeah. What are you, are you still going to that school in Vermont? <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I was walking down the street in New York City as like in my 30s. Yeah. And a New York City cop goes, hey, Manzoukas. And I was like, oh, fuck, what, what have I done? And I was like, oh, maybe this cop is like a fan or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. But I wasn't really doing much at the time. And it happened to be a kid I grew up with who was a Boston <laughs> cop and was on some sort of exchange. Yeah. First thing he says is, hey, are you still fucking allergic to eggs? And I was like, wow. <laughs> a, amazing pull. Yeah. And B, it sounds so good in that accent. Um, Did you grow up with that guy? Yeah. <laughs> He was from my hometown. He was in my Boy Scout troop. That's why he remembered the eggs. He was like, I remember we always used to give you our cold cereal because that's all you could eat. <laughs> that's a nice story. Yeah. That's we, used to, we used to kick your ass because you couldn't eat eggs. No, no. no. It was the other way. It really was like people people would look out for me in a weird way because there was like baked in vulnerability to me as a child yeah. and everybody knew it. Oh, really? Because I was like, when I grew up, there was nobody else had fatal food allergies it wasn't as predominant as it is now so like everybody in my school was aware of it everybody in town was aware of it. all the boy scouts were aware of it. so it was as if it was as if everybody who were all these kind of tough yeah boston towny archetypes yeah. were with a boy made of glass right who they'd be like we got to carry the boy made of glass around no eggs for this yeah kid. exactly yeah and then and, yeah. and then as a result i become very funny i think because and they're like hey you're funny yeah yeah well no it it is a hardened character there but you know they are they they it's it's weird because when i go back up there and I, I spent four like seven years there sure it's very intimidating, but they are a pretty caring bunch. They're very, oh, yeah. you know, engaged. There's you know. tremendous heart in there. Yeah. Um, but there is it is such a gruff demeanor Tough, yeah. that is trying to hide that heart. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. that they are, you know, it is it, it, I think it's the Irish. It, oh, it's a hundred percent the Irish. Yeah. That that temper, that flair, that boom, you know, like but also that sort of like, yeah, we're all fucked. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I fucking love you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it is. It, I do love it. I love that. I've, gr- I've grown to appreciate it's it. It's pretty like, great. It's weird when you go back, when you're in something, there's a menace to it, at, at least for sure. a period of time. But then when you go back, as you get older, you're like, this is great. Yeah. The nostalgia takes oh, over yeah. and you forget. I, I get really, and it, it makes me really, like somebody was telling me a story recently about like, oh man, I was just, I did a show in Boston. We were out to dinner and like these guys at the next table were like made a big deal about like what big fans they were and then they wanted a picture and we were like oh yeah can we just do it we're in the middle of eating yeah. can we do it when we're done eating <laughs> and and it was like it, it was maybe within 10 seconds i thought i was about to be in like my first fight since high school like the guy was like oh you're fucking too good to take a picture with me 
I just fucking told you I'm a fucking fan. We were at your fucking show. <laughs> right. And it's like, Im- boom. And, and you, you start to pay. It's like the distance between a, co- a friendly compliment and about to get your ass oh, kicked. Oh, that's who is you seconds. are. That's who oh, you are. You're, you're fucking too good for me. Yeah, huh? you're right. Uh, Mr. Fancy Guy. Are you, are you? No, no, I don't need a picture. No, no, you know what? Fuck, fuck it. Fuck you. Fuck it. Fuck you. I'll be waiting fucking outside for you. <laughs> you little shit. So did you were you in a band though in high school? I was. I was in a bunch of bands. I was also in marching band. I was in like the school and jazz band, all the school bands. And then Because uh, you could read music, right? I could, yep. Still can, I imagine. Still can, yep. And then uh, and then I was in like rock bands. I yeah. was in like bands that would be like we would do cover we would, I was in cover bands that would do like Did you go James into Addiction. and play uh places? We didn't ever. We went and played like all the kind of Stuff on the island? All the no, all the all the suburbs of right. M- Marblehead, Beverly, Salem, all the kind of battle of the bands and kids bands and high school, all the punk and hardcore. It, it was also like punk hardcore era uh, where there would be. Were you in one of those six bands? bands? I was in. I was in a band that would play like Faith No More style, like right, yeah. uh, Primus kind of pr- proggy. We were yeah, better yeah. musicians, right? Right. Um, but like super like aggressive stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was in a bunch of bands. Yeah. yeah. So you go to college, yeah. You, like you're, you've you've written some comedy, yeah, some sketch comedy, I high have. school variety show, sure, sure. You've played Primus, yeah. You're ready to go to college, yeah. You've got two, you've got two, uh, two great skills, yeah. Now, what do you do when you get there? Do you do you get in a band? I what, do. I, I get into a band, and I and I get into and I start like a jazz group that I also play with, like a just a straight ahead like kind of, you know, bebop yeah. group essentially, yeah. um, and then. Um, and then I also join what is like at the time, like the college has just started or the people at the college, a group of young, like a, a group of kids yeah. have started an improv group. Yeah. And so I join that because right it, away it, uh, I try out right away. I don't get in until like the next semester. Right. Um, obs- yeah. And then become completely obsessed with that. You've never done it before. Never done it. But you got a jazz brain, and you got a it's all funny guy. It's all improv, right? So for me, it's the same skill set, just applied but in the, different directions. Right, but there's a college improv group. Yeah. So what are you doing? You're doing games. We're doing short form games. Yeah, uh, but two, and it's all the corny. It's all whose line is it anyway? Yeah. You know, corny games. Uh, but where it's the first time that I'm ever like, you know, we would do like the variety show in high school or band, you know, concerts or whatever, like to a couple hundred people. But like for some reason, because it was like. I, I went to uh, school in Vermont, like small liberal arts college. In Which Vermont, one? Middlebury. Yeah. Uh, but like we would, this improv group would do shows to like six, 700 people for some reason. Oh, really? Like, They'd all popular. come out? Like, Everybody would come and was watch. Was there nowhere to go in town? Truly, there was not. <laughs> it was a desolate place. And so it, that was the first time I had like, oh, wow. Yeah. This is fucking huge. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. room is enormous. All these people are laughing. They're going nuts. It was, it was super fun. And then- uh, and then a guy named uh, Rod. Do you know Rodney Rothman at all? No. He's a writer here uh, in town. Um, very successful. Um, has worked on a ton of stuff. He was in the same improv group that I was in, and he went and interned in New York at like um, at uh, Chicago City Limits. Do you oh, remember right. what that sure, is? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, I do. I and he came back that. with Truth in Comedy, the long form improv textbook, basically. Right. And he was like, "This exists. Was I've seen a, this." Was that the Del Close book? Yeah. yeah. He said, this, this is the thing. This is it. We got to be doing this. He brought that back to college. Yeah. 
And so we all read the book. None of us had seen what like a Herald was or what long form improv and was. And you're what, a sophomore? Yeah, at this point I'm a sophomore or I'm maybe a first semester of junior year, but I think I'm a sophomore. So this is one of those moments. It's like the drum teacher. A true epiphany. Yeah. Although misguided because we read the book and attempt to do it uh, on a small scale. We want to do it in like the coffee shop on campus, but it's, we are terrible at it and it's. It, well, what was what, like? What was the challenge at that time? Because I don't, I don't fully understand it. Like, okay, it, so I mean, it's like the difference between like big band and like bebop. Right, like, right. Big band, you're playing the chart. You yeah, know, like yeah. you really are adhering to structure. Yeah, that's like the games. Yeah. Short form games are limited in scope. They are short in in format, and they are a prescribed game. So the idea of short form games is like. Conceptually speaking, improv, if everything is possible, yeah. you are more inclined to panic. Right. And so everything you put on it is to restrict the possibilities. Right. So short form games are incredibly restrictive. So right. so much so that you really are only improvising a very small element of the whole scene. Well, it's like shtick. It's yeah. You're yeah. just plugging in joke. Basically. So short form is like from, would that be an audience suggestion game? Correct. Right. Okay, we need a, we yeah, need yeah, a, a, yeah. a non-geographic location sure. and a profession. And, and then now you know you're doing jokes about those two yeah, things and, and blah, blah, blah. It. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Long form is like, you're going to get one suggestion. The word is burrito. Yeah. And you're going to do like a 30 to 40 minute or longer, depending, show of different scenes, connected scenes, uh, group scenes, all of it that is born of that one suggestion. Yeah, I've seen some of it at, yeah. at, at, at like UCB. Like ASCAD or yeah, stuff yeah, like that. Right. And so as a result, you're seeing like something that is a lot more built from the ground up right. than it is like right. within the confines of a, of a game yeah, or something. Yeah. So, but when we read the book, we were just like, okay, so I guess, so the first part of it traditionally yeah. is of the Herald is like a pattern game. So if you say burrito is the suggestion, great. So for the first minute and a half, yeah. we do some, the group as a whole does some sort of like idea where they kind of take the word burrito or take whatever that inspires and they examine it for a minute or so just to kind of generate a bunch of information. Yeah, People might tell a story, people might, whatever, it doesn't matter. A minute, minute and a half, yeah. right? Just to yeah. put some stuff on the table. We used to do that for 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and it would just be like burrito. Yeah. Beans. Yeah. Rice. Tortilla. Yeah. Lunch. Yeah. Sandwich. Yeah. Like, and that, this is what happened for 15 minutes. And we no were laughs. So serious. You no get laughs. laughs. Of course no laughs, Mark. We were doing nonsense. <laughs> it was terrible. And we did this for a long time. And then, I, and then eventually I went to New York and... UCB was just starting and I watched it and I was like, oh, this is what it was supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be like joyful and fun and not austere and like breakfast, breakfast cereals, cocoa puffs, like Ca- you, Captain you Crunch. Like a game show answers with no rules. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. It was terrible. But, yeah. uh, but that, so that started like that process of like improv, uh, comedy and like that's at that point and then I also ran the radio station at college and those were the two things I cared the most about you ran the radio station yeah like what you were the the manager I was I eventually was the, the programming manager, manager? I, yeah eventually I started out as like the jazz manager then became you know because nobody wanted to do no, it literally I went to the first meeting yeah and nobody wanted to be the, they they assigned every other position and yeah. they were like we okay the only thing we don't have is no it's jazz and I was like Yes. Yeah. And I was like, just got to college. And they're like, okay, you, you. And I was like, that's it. That's all it takes. And I knew like, I knew some stuff about jazz. Did you have your records? I had some of my records. This was the best. Yeah. The best thing that happens at the end of my freshman year, the, uh, the GM came to me and said, Hey, um, we have 
not used our budget for the year. And if we get to the end of the year without spending it, we have to give it back. So here's $3,000 to buy records with over the summer. And so, and I was like, what? He was like, just bring them back with you when you come back to school. He's like, I just need to give this money out so that we don't. Yeah. So I took that $3,000 and like the first week I was home, I went to Tower Records or yeah, one of the biggest yeah, record right, bar, right, Boston yeah, record stores. Yeah. And I bought $3,000 worth of, of jazz. Of jazz <laughs> and spent the whole summer just crushing it. Just consuming. <laughs> and then brought it all up. And it was, it was the best summer because yeah. I bought everything. You built their library. I built their library. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. I, built their, I built their CD library. Which Did you mix t- it up? Did you do a oh, yeah. big I went, band? Yeah, you, totally. Wait, you were I went curator. from Dixieland. Yeah. I went from Dixieland and Ragtime, like uh, Fats Waller and all that stuff, all the way through like fusion right. Mahavishnu orchestra all the so you knew you had a job you were a curator oh absolutely and, and I was you... very responsible <laughs> <laughs> I was very nerdy about it and would try and like turn people on to stuff and yeah. they'd be like I don't like this yeah. I, don't, I don't like that was the other thing is yeah, like, I would always like play stuff for people like we were looking at your records beforehand and there was a Husker Du record in yeah. there and I remember I got turned on to Husker Du like maybe eighth grade yeah yeah and I remember like bringing it to like a buddy's like uh, house and being like, "Dude, this is amazing! You got to listen to this." And like literally, like that guy then not really being my friend anymore. Oh, it's being like, "Yeah, you're I don't into know weird you. stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're into wrong. like weird music." And then with jazz, you're sort of like, T- "Just hang out. It's only a 15 minute tune. <laughs> and it gets real good." Yeah, the solo is amazing, and that's the part that people have the most trouble with. <laughs> right, right. I don't understand what's happening now. <laughs> But they, they must have been very grateful that you built out their jazz library. So were you on the air fun. late at night or what were you just... Sundays. Oh. Our, our station was all Four day hours? Sunday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then as I got further into it, I would just be on air all the time. Oh, really? You know, because anytime that we had holes in the schedule, I would just go and... I would just pick a thing that I wanted to become obsessed with or that I was slightly obsessed with and i would just do a deep dive into that thing like so like one artist or, or like hard bop or something oh, like yeah. at one point africa i became yeah. obsessed with like uh, uh sub-saharan african music like senegalese music uh, mali yeah uh, all of it you know yeah. fela all that stuff yeah, yeah. like uh, afropop all of it yeah um and would just be like great this is what i'm gonna do <laughs> and i'm gonna do i'm just gonna get into this and yeah. there's at the time no internet yeah there's no research i just have the library that's available to us and what i can kind of read now did you have any fans of the show (laughs) when i had my jazz show this was the best when i had my jazz show people it was and when i tell you i was like on the radio like we it was a 100 watt radio station that then became a 1000 watt radio station so it reached basically the town of yeah and the dorms right it was not it was not like i was out on the air but you were you were in it though but i used to get collect calls from the prison for the jazz show every week a guy would call collect from prison and ask for miles davis yeah and you and play, play it. It. <laughs> that's your one play guy it. yeah the one guy and i was like dude this is a- i love this absolutely <laughs> and i was like even if it's a prank right i still love it because i'm you gonna play- you're playing Miles. you want me to play miles yeah. if it's a prank sure you knew it wasn't a prank though. i don't Who think you- it was it seemed pretty real so so now it- so you're running the radio station you're doing improvs you figured yeah. it out you when you went to new york though was that the thing that made you realize like oh shit this there there's a world out here for this oh yeah absolutely i mean at the, i'm at that point like pretty aware of second city yeah. i'm aware of groundlings like i know things exist i yeah. know that there are hubs right. for this right um but i also very much want to move to new york city 
Right. You, I, you, you didn't think about Chicago? You, didn't. you didn't get obsessed with I, Del Close and the whole legacy I of did. that? I did. Like, I met Del Close. At, did? Like, I did at the... Um, there used to be, a like, a Skidmore used to do an improv festival every year for all the college groups. Yeah. And they brought Del one year. Like, he was old, maybe, though, like, right? four years before he died. Three, uh-huh. four years before he died. Man, probably longer, actually. But not too much longer. Anyway... And he came and uh, and was like uh, predictably Del Close, like a relentless prick to everybody yeah. for the whole of it. And it, right. was, it was awesome. Yeah. You know, it was really cool. <laughs> so he ran a seminar type yeah. of thing? Yeah, he kind of gave notes to people as they did stuff. But um, so I was like very into it, but I came to New York. Um, did you graduate? Graduated, yep. What was your degree in? Religion. Really? Yeah. Um, in as much as... I needed something to major in. So you put it together at the and end? And I liked that department. Uh, I tried being a philosophy major, but I am not a good enough student. And even a religion major. Like when I, I did my, the- I did, I wrote an honors thesis, went to my thesis defense, and my professor goes, Jason, his first line, Jason, you're not a great scholar. <laughs> But thank God your gifts and graces lie elsewhere. So let's take this and put it aside. I can't give you honors for this. This was not very good. Did you even proofread this? And I was like, Larry, I did not. What was it on? It was on religious iconography. It was, when I tell you I wrote it in like maybe eight days. Yeah. And it was a hundred some odd pages. It was terrible. He had every right to be like, I'm not giving you honors you, for this. Well, but it was interesting that you picked like a, a fairly non-challenging, non-philosophical area. Totally. Like, let's look at this, this, yep. uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> pictures. If you asked me now about it, yeah. I could tell you zero. <laughs> I could tell you not one single thing but, about but it. But there must have been just a, a dearth of information of, you know, totems and talismans yep. and you know, relics and whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> bleeding icons, crying icons, icon, all of it. Yeah, but it was enough that it was enough that it interested me and was within. But here's the thing: I didn't need to do it. Yeah, it was like the arrogance of on my part to be like, yeah, I'll fucking write a thesis. Why not? Yeah, no, I've I've been that guy. Yeah. I, I auditioned at Yale Drama, you know, yes. and I submitted a, a photo strip as <laughs> as my headshot. <laughs> okay, I love that. I like, love that. I got this ace. That's great. These guys, they get it. Uh, um, they don't. You can't, you know, charm will only take you so far. Oh, absolutely. But, <laughs> but in a great way, like that same thesis, like that, uh, that, that professor who loved me and who I loved and who was like, you're just not, this isn't what you should be doing. Yeah. He also was like, he would be, the, he would do, he did this. He goes, at one point he, we would, uh, he was teaching a three hour New Testament class. Yeah. And in the, in the middle of the whole thing, he goes, will you walk back to my office with me? I was like, yeah, sure. And he goes. So I feel like about midway through the class, I'm losing them. <laughs> yeah. How do you think I could kind of engage them and get them back on track? He's asking me like performance Right, questions. right. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, let's get into it. <laughs> and I was like, this is what I can do. This I can give you. Like yeah. the rest of it, I'm a mess. <laughs> yeah. But like on an on a actual intellectual level, no. But this I can definitely help. What'd you, know? you do? And I was, like, I was like, at a certain point, you can't just talk at us you know like at a certain point you i think you got to open it up and you have to engage in a way that isn't do we know the material that is more just a conversational break yeah you know because we can't it's not just a matter of like let's take a break and come back yeah like you need to have us engage in the break right. with you like so that like the whole thing becomes broken down into so something like, that is right so in the middle so in the middle he just out of nowhere goes is there a god <laughs> <laughs> What is this guy? And like business? you see people be like, what, what's Wait, going on? What's what, do we, what do we do? Yeah. What do we do now? They put their pencils down. <laughs> One kid wakes up. Yeah, exactly. What happened? Oh, uh, three hours. Yeah. So, all right. So that you get your religion degree, mm-hmm. and then what do you do? I get. Um, 
I have a very weird uh, post-college uh, for, I get a grant. I get a, I get a grant out of college and I, I live abroad for two years doing a, doing an ethnomusicology project. How that like how that come together? Middlebury is one of the col- like there's um, it's called a it's called a Watson Fellowship. Mm-hmm. This thing I got and it's like a non academic Fulbright. But kind you of. S- you sought it out. They didn't just. I de- did. You didn't I just- did. Um, so you weren't real clear on what the hell you wanted to do. You no, were still like I was deep still. And the- this was this this was the thing that attracted to me. There was like uh, you there's a grant that's out there that uh, our college is one of the nominating colleges for. And you have to propose an idea that you think would be cool to do that is not part of your, that you would not pursue academically otherwise. Right. The point of it is they want to finance and fund your kind of experimental year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I did that. I pitched them a, 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 a project that was, and it was typically like, I'm a terrible student. So my proposal was shitty, but I was charming in the room. Right. And so I got it. But th- but this is for the, the last two years of college or two years no, after? two years after. So you really weren't chomping at the bit to get down to New York to do long-form improv? I, I wasn't yet because this I was like very, like very curious about this. I was like, somebody will give me money to go abroad. What was the pitch? The, the pitch was... Um, it was music uh, that was meant to induce a state of prayer, like holy prayer and union with something holy. So you're drawing on your religion degree. And my music. Right. My music interest. Right. And it was like a lot of it was like there's a there's there's a jazz pianist named Randy Weston. Yeah. Uh, great uh, jazz pianist. And he becomes obsessed with Mor- uh, this music from Morocco called Ganawa music that is this like... Um, incredibly hypnotic, beautiful, uh, rhythmic, trance-inducing music that is meant to exorcise demons. It's very difficult yeah. to wrap your brain around. Yeah. So I find this Randy Weston album in my kind of, uh, at the radio station uh, <laughs> that you had research, bought. Yeah. And I was like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. The, the, he's amazing. But what these Moroccan musicians doing is cra- like wild. Yeah. And so I was basically like, I want to go to Morocco and talk to these people. Yeah. And I kind of built a project around that as the centerpiece. Yeah. And then wound up going to other places as well. But it was all about like music that was supposed to kind of bring you into union with God. Yeah. The trance. Whatever music. your God the, is. The, the transcendental, transcendental mm-hmm. music. Yeah. Whirling dervishes yeah, in Turkey. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. yeah. Sufi Islam. All of it. Yeah. So did, you went to all those places? Yeah. Where, where'd you go? Uh, Morocco, Egypt, Israel, and Turkey. And then I traveled in like Jordan and Syria. Huh. Yeah. That, so that must have been mind-blowing. It was um, like beyond. Like it truly is like the, this, like it is the, the I, I genuinely believe the only reason I do everything I do is because of those two years. Like those two years of I got on a plane. Their, their whole thing is we'll give you the money. The only rule is you can't come back to the United States for at least a year. Yeah, and and I landed in Morocco, and with, with what? What just like a like five doors, a five doors book, or yeah, lonely with planet? like a uh, yes, a lonely planet book and yeah. a a rough guide. Yeah, and and, um, the, and the names of the music you wanted to go find. Yeah, so you had to go to these places. And when I tell you that I'd prepared, not at all. Yeah, didn't know where I was going to go. Yeah, barely knew who to be even looking for. Didn't right. know even if they were there. <laughs> I got there, and a lot of people were like, "Oh, those guys are in Paris." Oh, really? And I was like, "What?" <laughs> the only guys who have to yeah. do it. But not not the only guys, but I then found other guys, which was awesome. Yeah. But I really went thinking like, yeah, 
And, and I bet people are going to speak English. And I got there. And I, when I tell you I had like a straight up nervous breakdown. Yeah. I had a nervous breakdown within in the Morocco. first three weeks in Morocco. Yeah. I lost my mind. And what'd you do? I, I panicked. I was genuinely like, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to talk. I didn't. I was spending days. It wasn't an existential nervous breakdown. No, it was it like was a, a. What um, did I get myself into nervous breakdown? Correct. Yeah. I, and I was like, and the prison of. I can't go home for a year. Yeah. And I don't know anybody. And days were going by and I wasn't speaking to any living person. But you're eating good food, right? Terrified. Yeah. No, because I'm terrified of food. Food is like, <laughs> oh, I, I have such a complicated relationship yeah, with Is there food. eggs in this in yes, Moroccan? Of course. It was terrifying. <laughs> and so finally I meet some people and everything yeah, mellows yeah. out. And I basically learned to be like a self-sustaining adult. Yeah. You know, in those two years. And that's transformative in who I am and my were willingness you, to you, take chances and put myself into situations that I'm would otherwise be uh, scared by or uncomfortable by. Yeah, nothing. It's nothing. nothing. Uh, nothing's going to happen on stage. No. that's going to match I was, Morocco. I was arrested in Morocco. I was put in jail in Turkey. Like I've been like in really sketchy, scary places. So I'm like, you want me to get up and do like an hour of improv and not know what's going on? Yeah, I'll fucking do that. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's like the easy people are like, I'm so scared and not know Why what to you? say. <laughs> And I'm like, uh, uh, that's like the easiest thing. Well, what what'd you get arrested for in Morocco? Stupid stuff. Oh. Stupid stuff. Like literally, I got arrested in Morocco. It's like for... it's not sexy stuff, but it's like it was terrifying in its because you don't what know happened. Right. Well, you don't know. What, yeah, all of a sudden, it's like you're in jail. And yes, Morocco. I got arrested in Morocco for having an expired tourist visa. Yeah, which they told me was fine. I called the embassy and I said, I'm I'm going to leave the country. I my thing expired. They were like, Don't worry, you're leaving the country. They're not going to care. I get to the, I get to, I'm in um, um, Tangiers. I go to the port. I'm going to get on a boat and go to Spain. Arrested. They put me in a holding cell. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay, I guess at the port. And I'm going to say, I'm going to sign something. But aren't you thinking to... like Midnight Express is about to happen? Y yes. When they load me in a paddy wagon with a bunch of other guys that are straight up criminals. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> and I am in prison for like 18 hours uh, in a general holding cell yeah. and I've got like $2,000 worth of audio equipment on me. I'm the only foreigner in there and everybody's like, hey, 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 my friend, hey, my friend, hey, hey, my friend. And I'm yeah. just like head down, like not, not talking to anybody. And then I had to wait until sure, they could- You sure couldn't tell them why you were in there. No. And I had to wait until they convened like three judges to see everybody's case who was in that room. Yeah. So it just took forever. Right. And it was, and I didn't know. I kept thinking like, well, of course, once they look at my passport and see them, like I would get into, I would be so cool and like, I'm cool, don't worry about it. The minute I would get into trouble, I would become like the most relentless, ugly American. Oh, really? I'd be like waving my passport, being like, I'm Help American. <laughs> it was awful. Same thing in Turkey. Like I got, like we got stopped. We were trying to- Turkey, was, that's actually where Midnight Express took place, 100%. Right? Yeah. And, but we were dumb. Like, like I was, I was dumb and I was young, and so like we rented a car. Who's we? I was with a guy, a guy that I'd met in Marrakesh, um, like a like a buddy of mine oh. who was in the Peace Corps in Morocco. When he finished Peace Corps Morocco, oh, he he went with you. He came and found me in Turkey for two weeks. He yeah. was like, "I'll just come there before I go home, and we can travel around." Great. We go to southeastern Turkey. We start driving straight towards uh, like the PKK, the the part of Turkey that's in a civil war, basically. Right. And we're like, because we, we used to do that thing where we'd be like, where's the sketchiest place in this country? Yeah. Let's try and go there. Yeah. Like we tried to get into Iran. I tried to get into Lebanon, like closed countries. They'd Why? Be like, just because, because yeah. we were stupid, you know? Well, and you were curious, yeah. I guess, and you wanted to have the story. Of course, always yeah. wanted the story. Yeah. Uh, but the military pulled us out of our car and like put us in jail for a night. And we were like, we're Americans. You can't do this. We were like fucking assholes. Yeah. Assholes. 
And then there's artillery fire all night long. Huge cannon artillery fire. And we are like terrified. Yeah. Terrified. And then in the morning they come, pick us up, and they bring us back to our car. And And only then were we like, they were protecting us. Right. They were protecting us from driving into an active war zone at night. <laughs> you idiot. So they held us for the night and right. let us drive home. Right. But like, and we treated them like fucking assholes. And they're probably another one, another two yeah. Americans. Yeah. yeah, here we go. Two more shitheads. Uh, but yeah, no, we were we were stupid. Well, what'd you learn from the music though? Um, the music was it, a lot of it was really uh, Morocco. I spent the most time in Morocco, seven and a half months in Morocco. Yeah. And it was really interesting because the music was still, once I kind of drilled down into and found the guys that were still doing it and earned their trust and was able to go, because basically this music is played at like ceremonies that are meant to be like, if somebody's sick, um, like whether it's like a cancer or whatever, there is part of, um, part of what happens is they will bring in these musicians to, and all the songs are associated with different colors and all the colors are associated with different demons. Uh-huh. And so the presumption is that this person who's sick is possessed by some sort of demon. Right. And we're going to just play music from sundown till sunup until we figure it out. And we're going to play the we're going to play and dance the demon out of them. Wow. And so that is the stuff that eventually I would go. I would, again, very dumb and trusting. They'd be like, be here at like five o'clock. We're going to pick you up. We're going to drive out to a place and this you're going to see it. And I would get into a car with a bunch of random dudes, drive like an hour outside Marrakesh and go to someone's house and and this would happen. And people would be like stabbing themselves with knives and, and people would be dancing. And it was like it, dancing in a trance, not dancing like I'm enjoying the music. Right. But like it was it was incredibly powerful to watch. It was shamanistic. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, really. and you're recording it or you're writing? or I would you... not record those because it was not cool right. to record right. those things. But some of those musicians i would then record just like in their house yeah just without the what kind of what are they playing what are the instruments the instruments are just uh one guy is playing uh what's called a gimbri yeah. which is like a, a three string gut in stringed instrument yeah. yeah um that um uh, and then like metal castanets big yeah. giant metal uh yeah. castanets is essentially what they yeah. are that are providing just a driving constant rhythm that is unrelenting and exhausting. And they do it all night. All night. And did it work? You would see people like have like truly kind of what seems to me to be like out of body experiences. Huh. Like you would you would because the other thing is they would be playing music for the person who was sick, but they'd be playing all these songs. So then sometimes you'd see people who were just sitting around on the edges. Yeah. Um, just like having a coffee or a tea or something, and then all of a sudden they'd be like, they'd fall to the floor. <laughs> They would somebody would they would start playing a, a song and somebody would just fall to the floor and then just start kind of having like almost a seizure, almost a spasm. And you thought it was genuine. It seemed genuine. Why would why, why would they why why you would know. you just fall to the ground yeah, if no, you're just observing? There's no preacher putting on a shtick. Nope. Nobody's asking for you to do anything. People would just like Was this part of a religious practice? It is um it is something that has uh, existed prior to Islam in North Africa, but has been Islamicized since Islam came to North Africa. Right. So it is. Well, you musicians, they know when they need to keep a gig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did that for a couple of years and then came back and moved to New York and right as UCB was starting, basically. But, but like uh, all these different varieties of this spiritual music, 
what did like did you were you on any personal spiritual quest? I was did, not. But did did it in, affect anything about your understanding of people in the world, in the sense of anything that it, you carried with you? Or that's a great question. It did, in as much as it it bolstered and solidified my belief that everybody is searching for some union with something. Yeah. And even though all these different people are interpreting it differently and are tell it's much it's not unlike all the religion the religion department at Middlebury was just a comparative religion department. Yeah. We studied everything. Right. And you just are like, oh, all these tenants are the same. They're just yeah, you know different practice. guys. Different it's just yeah. practice is yeah. the only difference. Right. Um, and so it was really interesting to be like, oh, it's interesting to watch people process music in that same way. And like, oh, one of the you know, one of the methodologies to get to enlightenment yeah. is music. Right. You know, just like there's also like Zen monks whose practice is archery. Right. You know, that I'm like, oh, when I found that out, I was like, what do you mean archery? Yeah. And it's like, that is their meditation. Sure. Their meditation is archery. And they've incorporated into the religious yeah. spiritual yeah. system. And it's really interesting. Yeah. That idea of constantly being i also lived in greek monasteries for a while and it was like that idea of constantly being in prayer yeah was always was very interesting to me i i'm impressed with it but it's it's you've got to the things you have to shut off yeah you know in order to live that life which is virtuous or or very specific any life yeah but it's like it's a tall order oh very hard i I don't yeah and i i don't but pieces of it very compelling no, definitely, you know? but it's like the discipline of it, you know, better be enough to make you feel good about yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or better make you not feel anything about yourself. Lose the ego. Lose that, you yeah. know. And connect, in, you're in direct relationship with God. I think so. Yeah. But I mean, like, as two people who are only seeking individual glory constantly Well, that's stage. an American thing in a way. Yeah. I, You know, they, there is something about self-centeredness and... and, and uh, Careerism, sure. entitlement. Yeah, getting you know, what ahead. about me? Oh yeah, you know, uh, like, but I'm like, I'm doing unique things. Yeah, you know that whole thing. It it does. Why get... why pursue the indiv- the universal when I can pursue the individual? Well, that shit get wears out, dude. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're like you're at the end of it or or in yeah. middle age and you're like I got no universal. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now what do I do? Oh yeah. How do I? Yeah, I agree. How do I not be a dick? Yeah. How do I justify (laughs) my existence as part of society, as part of humanity? Yeah, because you can fool yourself for a long time. Yeah. Like, I'm contributing. Are you really, though? Yeah, Yeah. that was funny. And and for how long and to who? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. But it really is like, you know, and But then there's the other point. It's like, if you you can play Miles Davis for that one guy who's locked up, isn't that something? Wasn't that great? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now when you come back to New York, that's when UCB is just starting. So it's yeah. like 94. No, 90. it's a little later. It's 97, 98. The new UCB. Yeah. No, it's still, uh, they don't have a theater yet um, because it's still solo arts and um, they get the the first one with 22nd the, Street yeah. um, right as uh, in like 98, basically. Yeah. So like within the oh, first year, late, I'm huh? there, right? You know, and it's up and running for a couple of years before it's shut down. So you come back, you're like a, you know, you're a world traveler. Sure, you've had mystical experiences. Totally, you've been in jail in Turkey and yes. Morocco. Yes, and you're like you, now you've decided you got what music Comedy. and spirituality out of your system. You figured, a little bit. You got you figured it out some of it. Yeah, and you're ready to to go to the next thing. Yeah, I really am because at this point I'm also like hmm. I don't know if I'm going to be a musician. I don't know if this is, if I'm, if A, if I can do it, and I don't know, but I'm super compelled by comedy. 
You know, like I'm like really. And at this point, I visit New York. When I come back before I move, I I come because uh, my friend Rodney, who I mentioned earlier, is in New York, and he brings me to see a UCB show at the Red Room. Uh, at KGB. Right, okay, upstairs. Uh, upstairs at KGB. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this. Yeah. This is the thing. Well, yeah, because like yeah, that makes sense to me because the one thing you have to accept uh, in terms of being a musician, especially with the stuff you were interested in, is like, it's not for everybody. No. And nope. there's something about comedy or about sketch comedy that not only with a band you have community, but you have this, you know, this active creative spirit, but it's for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it scratched the same itch, but was social and an ensemble based in a way that because I was like, I don't think I'm going to be a stand up comedian. I don't think that's for me. I yeah. don't think I'm I would be good at it. Yeah. But improv and sketch, I, I I think is my thing. Yeah. You know. And then I I started doing UCB, and was immediately like all in on that. Like mu- the concept of being a musician like evaporated. So almost the, the original four were still around and involved. Oh yeah, they were all my teachers. Yeah. They were my teachers. They, Matt this is when and Amy the, and Ian and, 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 Matt. and Matt. Matt. Matt, Amy and Ian. And then Armando Diaz. Did you know him at all? No, I may, I'm sure I met him. Yeah. See, the thing is this weird is that like I was around then and mm-hmm. like I just ignored the whole goddamn thing. Of course. Why? What do you mean of course? Well, I mean, like at the time, it was not a venue that would have been someplace you would go. I, but I was an asshole about it. I was like, I'm a stand-up. You know, this is what yes, we do here. I you know. know. Then, and then, like, when, New York at that time was a stand-up town. Yeah, but then, like, the alt scene started to happen. Sure. And then the, when I was at Luna Lounge, the, the four started. Rebar, right? Well, was, Rebar, the original one. Yeah. yeah. But that wasn't for that long before it moved to Luna Lounge. But then the four yep. started doing their bits. Sure. And then other people, the state guys, started yep. coming around. Yep. And then you guys were all doing this amazing stuff, and we were like, "No, we're playing bars." Totally, you know. Oh, and that's and that that's the thing though that existed I never felt in New that York. you guys were like those stand-ups got it going on. I I don't know what the spirit of well, it was. I don't know how we cohabitated. What was really interesting is that like we existed truly. I felt like in those first years, like unto ourselves. I was not plugged into the world at all. Even like the scene, the comedy scene. I knew obviously what the Stella guys were yeah. doing or. Stuff like that, but yeah. I otherwise I didn't go around and see other people's stuff. You were all in. It was I a, was just UCB. It was like a cult. It really was, and people would call <laughs> it a cult all the time. They would. Oh yeah, people would be like, "Oh, that place is a cult," and and, and I know what they a meant. Cult of comedy. It, but it there was a definite like, it was it was our place, and yeah. we were building it from the like it was really exciting to be part of a scene from the ground up. So who was in like when you after you learned from that generation? Uh, who are my age? Yeah. Uh, what? How did? What was your crew? Who my was crew it? was like the generation that I come up in is that kind of first generation that is like, um, Paul Shear, Rob yeah. Hubel, right. Owen Burke, um, Danielle Schneider, and Donna Fineglass. Um, Kroll. Kroll's younger than all of us. Yeah. So, um, Cordry, Seth Morris. Brian Husky. I love Seth Morris. John Bowie. I love Seth Morris. He's so funny. Um, and then like John Daly uh, yeah. and Gelman. Gelman, yeah. are, they're a little younger than us, but right. started basically at the same time, but they were like kids. Yeah. Um, I'm trying, like all that early, you know, like Helms, blah, blah, blah. And then yeah. Kroll is like a little bit younger than us in age, and he kind of arrives a couple years later. Um, he arrives a fully formed comedic wizard. Yeah. Well, him, and then a couple years later, Mulaney follows him because yeah. they were both- Georgetown guys together. Oh, okay. Um, and, and then so they that, hook up with Aziz for the Human uh, Giant. Human Giant is is actually many years later because Aziz is quite a bit younger. Yeah. Um, and so that whole scene is like for the first bunch of years is just really us doing shows for each other, 
in a in an old hand job centric strip club on right. 22nd where the Hasids used to come yes. wondering and we Fleet had... Week yeah yeah oh really they oh, yeah. all show up oh yeah they heard about Fleet the Week took a couple of years before people realized it wasn't there oh, anymore and they would always be wasted and they'd be like we want to see the show and we'd be like at the front because you know like in order to take classes I would work at the the ticket booth yeah or whatever I would, right. I would intern there or whatever and they would be like, we want to see the show. And we'd be like, well, this is not, this is a comedy theater. This is, and, and they would just go straight in and then come straight out and be like, what the fuck's going on, man? <laughs> the same, with the, same with the Hasidic Jews. They yeah. would all go, like shamefully kind of go in and we'd be like, this is not the Harmony Theater anymore. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> but they were so uncomfortable with it, they would just kind of go yeah. in. Right. And then sometimes watch the show because they were now uncomfortable to leave. <laughs> And then sometimes just immediately leave. <laughs> so occasionally you'd have a chassid or two. Oh, yeah. Oh, that happened for the first two or three years, <laughs> like semi-regularly, um, just because it was such a well-known, apparently, um, Bill $5 hand job. $5? $5 hand jobs in the bathroom oh, yeah. was the harmony. I theater. hate when Jews live up to their stereotype. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was a great, like, it was a very exciting time. It was also like, nobody was looking at us. Yeah. Nobody had agents. Nobody had managers. Nobody had deals. Nobody had anything. It was. Uh, it nobody was, was on SNL. Earnest. Nobody had a TV show. Yeah. Nobody had nothing. We were doing bad shows for each other, just getting better. So you wouldn't even. You weren't pulling tickets yet. There's not people coming. It hadn't. Were you there when it turned? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. When people what started it, getting agents, it? and when people started getting deals, and when people started getting stuff, it was. There was a couple. There was certain people who like Aspen at the time was a real launching right. pad for people. Yeah. So people would get a sketch show together, go to Aspen, and get something out. Of You're right. It. Agents right. or, and then eventually people started moving to L.A. and getting work. Right. Like Andy Daly got Mad TV. Yeah. And Donna Fineglass got Mad TV. That was huge. Right. Because they were contemporaries. It wasn't like the UCB four having a Comedy Central show. Right. Which was like, yeah, of course. They're like our, they're yeah. like the, the people. Elders. They're like yeah. the elders. Yeah. But like when people that we came up with yeah. started doing stuff, it was wild and exciting. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then the internet happened and then everybody, every it, it was it almost like I felt like what happened when Nirvana broke and every Pacific Northwest band got signed. Right. Like when the internet happened and suddenly everybody could put sketches online and suddenly everybody was rep- represented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah everybody yeah. had deals. Right. Everything was happening. Right. And this, like, it was like a, a, a bright light was all of a sudden on our whole scene, which was cool. Yeah. And then the LA theater opening was really, I think, the transformative element. On Franklin. Uh, yeah, that first theater on yeah, Franklin yeah, in yeah. 2005. Yeah, That sure. was a huge moment. Right, because I, I was out here in 2002. I lived around the corner from it. And uh, yeah, it wasn't that's right. It wasn't the UCB theater yet. It was just a place. It was Tamarin. a place. It was the Tamron Theater. Yeah, but they did stuff though. Yeah. Still. Oh yeah. Like you could do comedy there, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I think so. It was like a rentable space. Right. Yeah. So when did when do you start getting work in the big show business? It takes a long time for me to work. Um, I. But now you're like in everything. Yeah, for a, a minute. Bit. For uh, yeah, I'm in everything for me. That's right. You're like, there's that guy. Hey, look at him. Yeah, and then there's that guy. I liked him on that other thing. He was funny <laughs> on this one too. <laughs> he always looks the same. He's very <laughs> consistent. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I'm lucky that way, I guess. Uh, I, I it takes me a long, long time, mostly because I have a very funny. I get a lot of success early on as part of like me and uh, Jessica St. Clair, uh, who's on a, a show called Playing House right now, and yeah. who's great. She and I are like a Nichols and May style comedy duo for many years, and we would do a show 
we went to Aspen, got agents and managers. What was it called? The duo. Uh, uh, it was just uh, Manzukas and St. Clair. We didn't have a uh, okay. We didn't have a name or anything like that. But, but so you did scripted shit. Yes, we did. Um, well, that was a weird thing that really came out of that whole thing is that people learned how to direct. They learned how oh, to yeah. write. They learned All how to do it. sketch. Yep. Because it, it was a full on <clears throat> community. Everybody played different roles, and you had to do it for everybody else. Yeah. So like, I would write and do my shows, but then I like I directed Seth Morris's one man show, or oh, yeah? I like would do you know everybody would do a part in everything he's so know? fucking funny dude the funniest right yeah i think funniest. he's so uh unsung yeah oh somehow he has like genuinely some of my all-time favorite characters yeah. i've ever seen yeah we used to do stuff with him on the radio and then yep. i've had him in my show uh, two you know two different seasons yeah he's just too he's funny. the best he's really and he's like also like genuinely one of the sweetest yeah. most generous men like in the world yeah you yeah. know like it's also like as opposed to stand-ups, which is, which has its own uh, uh, social kind of understanding, like what was very nice about coming up at UCB was like it's entirely based on support, right? Like the entire ethos of the community yeah, that is, is the big difference. Supporting you know, each other with 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 stand-up, we're both like we're all like it's, socially it's awkward, pretty, it's pretty mercenary, broken, yeah. fucking yeah. gypsies. And while we're full of broken people, right? There is definitely an element of it which is. We're trying to, we're helping each other. Yeah. Well, you know, like it's very support based. Um, anyway. But there must be somewhat competitive. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But still. And anytime competition was introduced, some uh, a guy came from Chicago and started teaching at UCB. Kevin uh, Mullaney was his name. And he started a show called Cage Match, which still exists, where different house teams would go head to head and the audience would vote on the winner. Right. Seems easy enough. I hate that shit. It fostered such aggressive competition yeah. amongst the like the improv nerds, right? That it like almost like caused schisms almost, between. Oh, really? Almost groups. crumbled the it whole was, thing. It introduced such chaos, yeah. and such vendettas, and people like people are still now participating in grudges that exist simply because of one cage match where they felt gypped. Oh boy, it, it's really great. Really funny. So, so it takes you a while. So you go to Aspen takes with St. Clair. Yeah, go to Aspen. We get a deal at Comedy Central. Did you model it after uh, Nichols and May? I mean, yes. was it? You did. Very much You so. listened to that stuff. Very much so. I was very into that stuff. Like yeah. those records I love. Compass Players. Yep. Yeah. Really great. And that was very, because they functioned much the same way we did, which was they, they generated their written material out of improv. Right. And so that's what St. Clair and I would do. We would, we would. We would have an, a regular, like an improv show at the theater, just the two of us, to just improvise. Yeah. And then we would record it, and or we would improvise just in a room, like in a rehearsal space, record it, and out of that, pull stuff that we liked, and then use that as the raw material to write sketches out of. Uh-huh. And so that's kind of how we worked, and that's similar to Nichols and May, how and, they worked. And you never took any acting lessons? I did uh, I did take classes. Uh, at a certain point, I took classes at um, the Atlantic Theater Company in New York. Yeah, that's so- Like uh, extension it's classes. It's like antithetical to improv, the Atlantic Theater in a way, no? It isn't, it isn't. What I liked, the reason I did it there is because it, it worked with improv in as much as they weren't focused on any kind of uh, sense memory or any- Sure, none it's of in that. the script. It really is, these are the words, say yeah, them. Yeah. It is just present tense, living presently, yeah. which is improv. Yeah. You know, right. it's just improv with scripted words. Yeah, live presently, present tense, presently, but and make also it up. Listen. Yeah, yeah. Which was, which is the central like ethos of improv, which is listen. Yeah, and that's something that is very hard to do when you are panicking because you don't know what you're going to say. Yeah, but like listening was such a is such a paramount <laughs> thing. Like when you're like uh, like you watch. Did you ever watch Wolf Hall, uh-uh. the Mark Rylance show on PBS? Anyway, 
you this show it, it's a fine show but mark rylance is like maybe the best actor working currently just like stone cold genius yeah and the, in the show he doesn't say a lot but he's listening constantly yeah. and watching him listen is one of the most compelling performances i've ever seen really so listening was so paramount and we'd been like taught to listen for so long that that was very easy to get into at atlantic you yeah know? yeah yeah um and it was helpful like uh you know because at a certain point i was like ooh. I'm big. I'm too big. Like yeah. when I go on auditions, when I get little jobs here and there, I'm just enormous. Yeah. Because I'm used to like sketching improv broad characters. Yeah. I need to temper this with reality. Well, you did that like, yeah, I thought that your role in Enlightened, that was a little yeah. like, you know. I like love a, that role. Yeah. Yeah. I like that show. Love. Yeah. Love that show. Yeah. Really amazing. But you were like a guy, like a real yeah. guy. You Regular guy. <laughs> Regular foreign guy. Yeah. Regular yeah guy. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you had to learn that. You had to learn how to bring it down. Very much. And not be um, always injecting bits or lightness or, you know, like really just sitting in things. Sitting with the feelings. Yes. Really just existing in moments. Yeah. No matter what they are. Right. Uh, And not worrying about filling silences or spaces or stuff like that was very kind of uh, important for me to learn because I was otherwise predisposed to just fill all the space with clever dialogue it seems that the one thing that happens with the improv community is that you all do each other's stuff so mm-hmm. you've been on a million things correct for a second or two yeah and 100%. then uh, and then you did um but i know that enlightened was a regular role right the league was a regular role sure. you did a lot and you were able yep. to write on that yep yep and those were that was a good great. group of guys great group um completely improvised show so yeah. it was like could not be a better show for me and my group of like like my peer group who were all on it because it was just our skill set on TV. Yeah. So it was, I'm so fun. Right. That job was beyond fun. And did they, what they gave you, you got a writing credit just because you were improvising. Did everyone no. get a writing credit? No, no, no. I got writing credit only on a couple of episodes that I actually wrote the outline for. Right. So there were, so I play a side character on that show. And then in success, I introduced, we introduced my friend played by Seth Rogen, who's an even more side character. Yeah. And then eventually I was like, we would like to do episodes that are just about us. <laughs> and so every season they would give us a one-off right. for the adventures of these two monsters. Right. So the, those shows would be full of like drugs and murder yeah. on a show that is ostensibly about fantasy football. So right. it was chaos. And Rogan and I would write those right. outlines. Because yeah. that's how the, the show is structured as like a seven page script outline. And you met him out here? I met him out here, yeah. Through like writers round tables and stuff like that. With McKay and those guys? Uh, more with Judd and those guys. Oh yeah? Yeah. So you kind of got integrated into this whole world of comedy out here yeah. pretty quickly though. It, yeah, I got. I stayed in New York much later than a lot of my peer group. Yeah, they all moved out of here. So when I came out here, they were already kind of set up. Right. They were already kind of in the world. Yeah, and so it wasn't. It didn't. It was very easy. Not very easy for me, but I was very lucky in the sense that people were like, "Oh, uh, they're doing a, a roundtable uh, or joke punch up thing. You should come to it." You know, yeah, because they knew about it. I got. I would get invited, and then. I would get on that list. And yeah. so the next time one would come around, uh, I would get invited, yeah. you know? And so... And you're a good guy. And I'm a good guy. Yeah, I'm, good I'm presence, good at those... You're excited. Like, I don't know you, but like, you know, you're all filled Anytime up. Anytime we run into each other, it's, it's always a delightful nice. conversation. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always like, yeah, there you are. Yeah. What are we going to talk? Still doing yeah. it. <laughs> but no, but I think some people are difficult, but I think like you not only have talent, but you probably, you know, in a room, you're you're a fun, fun guy. Very fun. Yeah. Yes. Very fun. And, 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 but also like... 
I'll I'll pitch jokes and I'll also I'm not afraid to be like this doesn't work right like I'm not afraid to be like in those rooms like oh this this is a problem you gotta we gotta fix this but do you find that you know even you know outside of the comedy nerd world that you're still like that there's that guy oh yeah yeah because like, I get a lot of uh, I'm uh, I hang around a lot with uh, with Kroll and we will get a lot of this which I enjoy because I like where I am at yeah which is people will be like oh shit Nick Kroll. Yeah. And Rafi from the league? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Don't know my name. It's better. Better. Uh, way yeah. better. Yeah. Way better. I can have a life. The the thing for me though is I am unquestionably me. Yeah. Nobody looks at me on the street and is like, is that who I think it is? Right. They're like, you're the guy. You're the guy. But I also think you're that to give or take, you know, on screen as well. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like Nick will do some pretty over the top shit. Sure. But you know, you stay within your wheelhouse. I do. For yeah. the most part. You know, there are a couple of things here and there that yeah. are, uh, that I'm diverging from, but right. yeah, more often than not, I'm playing some version of a maniac scumbag drug dealing sociopath <laughs> monster. <laughs> like some sort of charming monster is what I'm doing almost all the time. Well, do you want to do something other than that? I do. And I have, yeah. you know, uh, just not to the same degree of success. Uh-huh. You know, like the things that I've done that are more normal parts yeah. haven't been in as big a things, you know? Like what? Um, like I'm in uh, a movie called Sleeping With Other People that I think is terrific. Um, and I'm, it's like a romantic com. It's like the the pitch for it was, it's when Harry met Sally for assholes. Yeah. Um, and I play Sudeikis, I play like the Bruno Kirby part. Right. I'm like Sudeikis' married friend. Right. And I've got a wife who's Andrea Savage. and But we are super funny bickering but clearly in love and right. we're, we're parents and we're normal people i'm yeah. not a crazy person i'm like is that cardigans. rewarding it's great yeah really fun now is this one the 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 house the one that i watched most of nice uh, <laughs> yes this morning <laughs> terrific uh, i did you know i, yeah, I great. It, it it is in the world of those kind of comedies mm-hmm. you know but is that the, oh, yeah. it feels like the biggest part you've had in a oh, movie by far i by mean far. it's like you're half you're most of the movie yeah yeah no it's the movie really is Will, Amy, and I start a casino in my house. Yeah. And that's the movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it really is like, it's casino. It's Joe Pesci, De Niro, and Sharon no, Stone. Eventually. You know, it becomes, that's the, what it the, becomes. The, the last third of the exactly. movie. Exactly. That, when that's it gets where, violent, it gets pretty crazy. Yeah, but like, it does. Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, it's a weird thing. It seems to be happening recently mm-hmm. that the over-the-top violence, that yeah. out of nowhere, yeah. it gets very, oh, like, it, Normal people- juxtaposed with hyperviolence. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's just it's recent though, yeah. right? I think so. I think it's like it's it's trying to find it's trying to insert extreme circumstances into what would otherwise be ordinary comedy scenarios. Which, and it's, violence it, is it's one of the jarring. places you can go. Well, yeah, and I think that people have done it before like, you know, Monty Python has done it before. Sure. It's been around before. Yep. But there's something about, you know, a big screen movie yeah. where just out of nowhere, you know, that There's also a thing though which is oh, like like Sasha's last movie about yep. the soccer guy. Sure, what, what sure. was that called? Gr- Brothers Grimsby. Were you in that? No. I was in The Dictator. I was in the one prior. That was to like it. A, your big break in a way. It, it, it very much was. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the big the Grimsby movie, like which I saw at a screening at some small facility, <laughs> uh, like I was like, whoa, this is this is over the top. The, yeah. Like some of the the violence and some of the sexuality stuff. What what used to be a very well balanced like. The first within the first seven minutes of Beverly Hills Cop, yeah, there is an a, there's a brutal murder, 
Yeah, yeah. No, it used there's to, a in crazy the, in, murder. The, in the cop movies that used to happen. In those kind of action comedies of the 80s, violence and comedy are like interchangeable. Like yeah. both are being pursued all the time. Yeah. To, 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 to kind of both... Uh, uh, help the procedural element of the thing, and then also the comedy. But in the seventies and, and into the eighties, a bit, they, you know, the even things that were were comedies, mm-hmm. they you know people would die, right? Yeah. And now, I think the reason that violence feels so crazy or it was gone for a while is because it's gone for a while, and also because it's not being. Um, it's a true juxtaposition. the The ratio is so off now. It, when it, the movies now are ninety percent just comedic, yeah, and then every once in a while they sprinkle in ten percent of hyper violence just to be like, "Isn't this crazy?" Well, there's other genres like slasher movies and the, sure. the horror movies of that course. are just like gratuitous violence that that often elevate to comedy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of people, sure, think, maybe not great people, think they're hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Heads coming off and whatnot. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's not my cup of tea. But like, I watched analyze this for like the tenth time Great. on the plane the other day, yeah. and that's a gangster comedy. Yeah. No one goes down. No, there's no blood. No, nope. no one dies. Everybody's fine. And it's an intentional thing. There's gunplay, yep. but no one, no, no one, no one gets hurt. And that's a decision. Yeah. Oh yeah. So now, like that decision is different. Oh, totally. But the, the weird thing is, is that I still maybe it's because I'm old or something. There's some part of me that after everything goes down, goes down, that I'm like, well, these these people are morally flawed, yeah. and they're going to pay for it. Sure, <laughs> but that that doesn't happen. No, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> no, were you expecting like an an unhappy '70s ending? No, I don't know. This is not a Hal Ashby movie. <laughs> It just it, like I it, there's a point where it's not quite enough that you're you're running a casino in a suburban neighborhood. Like I've suspended my disbelief to to allow the that premise to occur. That we're basically opening a casino to take all of our friends and neighbors' yeah, money I, I, and I, make I'm, it ours. I'm going to let that happen. <laughs> but but once you know real people get hurt and and I'm like, well, this guy's not a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no. You really if you look too close at it, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. It's the same thing I remember with the dictator talking about it and like doing press for it and stuff and having to be like oh well keep in mind uh, we're playing terrorists yeah, yeah. <laughs> right like we're, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. playing like we're, we're funny and all this stuff but like we're we're playing people that are like bad guys yeah you're rooting for bad guys right yeah but you know you all in this movie y'all have these sort of problems yeah you know yours is a gambling addiction and totally. a divorce and theirs is they got to put their kid through college yeah but uh, but yeah, I mean it, it's 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 not meant to be an exploration of the human spirit. No, it is not. <laughs> no, it is not. And that's the thing. Like, if you get on board for that, if you buy into like, great, they're going to start a casino and they're going to be like, yeah. kind of morons and, yeah. and violent people. Great. If you are into it, it's fun. Well, the other question I had for you was Go. the uh, what uh, you you wrote co wrote ride along. I did. Uh, well, let me. Uh, I rewrote Ride Along. Oh, so you were brought in? I br- I was brought in. Ride Along was written as a like PG family movie. It Who was wrote it? Greg Coolidge wrote yeah. it. Wrote it first. Right. And then um, somebody else wrote a draft of it. Right. And then I wrote a draft of it, and then it died. Okay. And then years later, when after I think that what happened was Ice Cube was funny in Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah. And people were like, hey, he could do a comedy. And they were like, we already have it. It's this. Yeah. And so they took my script. Uh, my they When I wrote it, they asked it that it be for, uh, it was him and it, they wanted Andy Samberg to be the, the guy. Right. The, uh, the, the Kevin Hart part. Yeah. Uh, and so I wrote it for them, for those two. And then when it came back to life, I had nothing to do with it, but they used my draft and just rewrote 
all the stuff for Kevin. Right. Um, new guys rewrote it. Yeah. Um, and But because it was my draft that it was based off of, I got credit. Well, that must have been good. It was great. Yeah. It was great. And a lot of my stuff was structurally the movie, you yeah. know, and a lot of the jokes are my stuff. But but those guys uh, did a great, Man, Freddie, and Hay did an amazing job, you know, rewriting it for for Cube and, and Kevin, which yeah. was great. Well, why why is that the only thing you've written? I've written other stuff. I'm like... I'm one of those people that for many years like had a would would sell a show, would write a pilot, pilot would get made, not picked up. Right. There's a lot of those. Right. Like my the last 12 years of my life are sure. riddled with those. What about movies? Movies, I'm writing a movie right now for Paramount. Um I've written a bunch of other movies similarly, some of which have just sat and not been made. Nothing else has been made. Yeah. Um, sat and not been made are still in process. Yeah. Like I've got a movie that I wrote for Imagine that I'm supposed to direct and blah, blah, blah. But it's again, it's like getting comedy features made is very weird right now. Yeah. Unless it's like and you some don't mind big high the, concept the limbo thing. or doing the work and having it sit there? Or do you... It is. I used to mind it a lot more earlier when yeah. i had nothing else going on right and now i don't and it's not that i don't mind it but now i recognize that there is a constant state of flux in everything yeah and so i now i'm like i have i have my eggs in many baskets sure so if it takes two years for this movie to get made yeah. if at all right at the very least i'll have done these three things in that two years well yeah and you're working all the time do you still actually teach improv i don't no, I don't anymore. I haven't for since I moved here. Really. Not even a special seminar here and there. No, I have, that'd be fun though. Do that'd you do fun. it? I do. Yeah, every week. You I do. do a show every week at UCB here in, on Franklin. Someone told me they saw you do the best improv they ever saw in their life. Really? Yeah. It was uh, apparently it was uh, entirely silent. Oh, I know that show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you did a forty-five minute completely silent improv. Alone. Alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um I was t- I was supposed to do a show with three other people. Yeah. All three of them didn't show up. Right. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? I kind of was like, I don't know. This, you know, I've done it in the I've done shows in the past where I've just pulled random people out of the audience and yeah. done a show with them. Yeah. Uh and this show in particular, the idea of it is there's no edits. Right. So it's just one long scene usually. It just happens to be with more people. Right. So I was like, you know what? It would be cool. I'll do it alone. <laughs> You know, why not? I've never done that, you know, and it because at this point improvising like that's arguably the place I feel most comfortable in yeah. life. Yeah. Is on stage not sure. knowing what's going to happen. Right. It's the only time I'm not crippled with anxiety about the future or yeah. riddled with regrets about the past. Like you have that. I'm just like present tense. But do you really live in that zone I off live, the stage? Off like, stage. I am. I live in a less regrets about the past. Although sure. they're there like hyper anxious uh future catastrophic future thinker yeah like i am dread like, dread yeah i have fear that. and dread are, about all things like uh, coming over here no not coming over here no more of the world more like more like i'm very susceptible to like health concerns i'm very obsessed with i'm like a hypochondriacal in, you are? in many ways oh yeah totally um like when you went to the bathroom, yeah, I secretly took uh, Clorox wipes out of my uh, bag and washed my hands. Oh yeah, like just cause. Yeah, it had been a while. My bathroom is a little dirty. No, just cause. Just cause I'm like, yeah, really. Like I'm just like constantly cycling. My mind is constantly cycling. Yeah, but what do you do to stop it? Improvise. Improvise. Yeah, but I mean, or like- med- I try. I've been trying to meditate. I've been trying to do all of those kind of mindfulness exercises to kind is it of working. In fits and starts. 
honestly. Because I have Comes that too. I have uh, I have the paralyzing anxiety and dread. Yeah, and uh, for me, catastrophic thinking. Yeah, but do you are you? But you seem capable of experiencing happiness. Yeah, to but, some degree or another. Yeah, I'm good at representing that I'm capable of experiencing happiness. <laughs> <laughs> for me, so you're a professional. Yeah. For me, like like even here as we talk, yeah, I am still performing. A persona that seems vulnerable. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, and I'm aware of that. Yeah. And I'm aware of like, you know, like I was having a conversation with with my therapist recently, and was like, because she was like, I was trying to explain the idea of a comedic persona uh-huh. and a comedic persona that looks a lot like I look. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and she was like, I guess I don't know what you mean. I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to send you something because I have like the most naked conversational relationship with her yeah and i was like i'm gonna have to send you something that is representative of who i otherwise am yeah because you don't actually know that that version of me that i'm that i would otherwise talk about wait so when you're with her you're like wringing your hands i'm much more like um i'm much more forthcoming i'm much more just i'm much more vulnerable i'm much yeah. more laid bare yeah like there is no i have no i have no walls you know with her i because to me i'm like vigilantly pursuing like growth and and understanding with her yeah. in my mind i'm like the faster you and i connect on this the better the quicker i'm going to get out of my head but it doesn't work that way necessarily no, only, only not, in that I'm moment i'm not finding it in only in that moment yeah well, and then but, you walk out feeling like oh we really did it yeah and then i open my phone and i'm like fuck oh, fuck 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 <laughs> fuck, fuck. <laughs> So you're that guy. You're the guy that, uh, you know, there's probably a couple women who are like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, you they're, know, they're, I, they're I, out yeah, there. I, I love them, but I had to get out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's no good. It's no good. <laughs> you know, women who are like, I'm rooting for you, but yeah. like, yeah. it's no good. I I, you you got to figure exhausted. it out, bro. I'm exhausted. It, truly right? exhausted is yeah. what they would all say. Right. Yeah. Exha- it's exhausting. Yeah. It's so exhausting you, to fight with you. So you just spin around. Yeah. It, yeah. you know, like in variations of uh, of dread, uh, uh, anger, and, and sadness, fear, yeah. sad, melancholy. I'm uh, prone to fits of melancholy. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like all that stuff. So you're sort of like, I mean, I can relate to that in the sure. sense that you just keep throwing yourself into shit. Oh yeah. To uh, to you know to, to challenge or, it. Well, yeah, to challenge it and to defy it. Yeah. You, you know, uh, and like that's the thing about dread. It, but even as you said earlier, that you you know that you did all these things. You took all these chances and, you know, certain things aren't frightening, but, but there's still this core thing. What the fuck is that? So like, if you say to me, like, why well, I, I was put in prison and I did this thing. I mean, obviously it was limited to what it was, but, oh, yeah. but so a lot of things, you know, post that post the experience of having a, a meltdown, which now that you tell me what you're really like in an hour and a half in that, <laughs> that in, in Morocco, that must've been like, a I pretty, really was like, I gotta figure out how to be truthful and honest without just being like t- totally right. But, yeah. but so you must've really been freaking out in Morocco. Truly. Like and, I was like, like a, like, weeping on the street right like, catastrophic mess all alone out there alone so but so you got through that but yeah but in the same way with me is like okay so you know you catalog that experience and it should represent something that will uh you know propel you to be less fearless in life but the fear is not about getting up on stage or 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 doing the things that is so frightening to other people it's just this the quiet of being alone with your own brain i it, being alone period 
Mm. You know, like yeah. I feel like like the thing that is like the my nightmares like the the nightmares that I wake up like that I can't shake yeah. are nightmares of loneliness. Yeah. Are truly just I am alone. I am alone in a place that I don't know. I'm alone in the world. I'm like I have been I've been I'm a pariah. I'm a, like those are the things inescapable or, or, loneliness. or invisible. Yeah. That's what I get. Oh, interesting. It's sort of like if I'm alone too long, it's sort of like like I regress to this point where yeah. where I'm just sort of like no no Do I me. exist? Yeah, it's yeah. not quite like that, but just <laughs> sort of like you, you know, you start to forget that you 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 experience yourself in relation to, right? Other people, yeah. an audience or whatever. Well, it's a, so, it's a very narcissistic thing of like for me, I'll be like, if I don't hear from a friend yeah. for a little while, I'll text them and be like, are you mad at me? Oh, yeah. And I just yeah. don't know it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's better. I go right to fuck you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been I love a week. That. You go fuck yeah. yourself. Yeah. But then, you, then you've constructed an entire thing. That doesn't exist to, at all. To, they're, they're like, I'm yeah. sorry, my dog was sick. I'm exactly. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, or I'm going through some stuff. You could like just right. reach out and ask me how I'm doing. Right. It is a selfish thing. Yeah. I, I don't because do I'm fuck filtering you too it through, often. Yeah. I, I'm filtering it through me. Right. So, oh, I haven't heard from my friend in a while. I must have done something. It must be me rather than like, maybe, and, and, maybe and, and, they've got something right, going on. And then you reach out and immediately make it about you. Yeah. I, I don't know what I did, yeah. but I hope we're okay. Hey, I hope we're cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. Maybe last time did I say something? Right, or, you yeah. know? And they're always like, no, you know, my dad is sick. I'm going through something. Right. And I'm like, oh, oh fuck, I'm, I'm the asshole. I'm an idiot. It's like, oh, right. Yeah. You're supposed to talk to me more. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. How are we going to get better? Yeah. We're doing it, right? We're just sure. middle-aged men figuring it out. I guess. Like having- uh, Do you have a wife or children? I do not. I have neither. Yeah, so I don't either. Yep, so are we more. figuring it out? <laughs> you have a- You know, sounds like just as a fan of the show, it sounds like a very successful relationship right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. We're doing good. Great. But like, I don't think I'm going to have kids. Yep. I think that's done. And, uh, you know, I have- You think that's them. done because what, what do you've I decided want? you don't want kids. Well, like, you yeah, certainly but, could still have kids. Steve no, Martin had a kid when he was like 72 years old. Who did? Steve Martin. Yeah, I know. I mean, a million like, people had kids when they were older. I, but you know? I'm not. I don't. What do I want? What do I you don't want to be that guy? Yeah. I, I mean, it's like I'm. I'm going to be old. I'm almost tired already. Does she? Well, not really. She doesn't. You know. Yeah. But uh. But like, you know, I. I don't. I don't have the answers to those things that you know sustain relationships in a healthy way. Sure. That you know that where the compromises are okay. Yeah. And that like you know because I I get to that anxiety place or I get to that it's not even like it could be better or it could be mm -hmm. worse it's just sort of like I just, is this it yeah is this it yeah or is this it or I get am I doing it right yeah yeah am I doing this well, I right I know I'm doing it wrong yeah and then that that knowledge <laughs> is like uh, insidious when yeah. you start understanding that you're doing it wrong and that the system you've created is itself flawed yeah. in a way that can only destroy the thing that you are trying sure. to make. And then when you have this conversation with them. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, it, and then they're like, why are you so intellectual about it? Yeah. And or, I'm like, well, I'm trying to figure this out like it's a problem that we're going to figure out yeah. rather than just being yeah. with you and finding a way to do it together. You can't improvise in life, huh? Truly. It, I mean, and I talk about this constantly. Is oh, really? I am the best at a thing performatively yeah. that I am incapable of living in my life. I, I, I am an amazing improviser. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, that's a very arrogant thing to say, but I am a very good well, improviser. You've been doing it long enough to I've say that. I've been doing it very yeah. long. I'm, a, I'm very good right, at it. Right. And it is living in the, listening, yeah. living in the moment and accepting only the enough responsibility for that which you can provide in that scene on stage or right, whatever. Right. 
Which is, by the way, a great model for living your life. Sure. I'm only responsible for that which I can provide to this person or this event or this in my life. Yeah. Incapable of doing that. In life, I'm like, I must be responsible for you and your happiness. Yeah. I'm in my mind during this being like, is this a good episode? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Is Mark going to be, is Mark going to be happy about this? Or is he going to, what's the intro going to be like? Is he going to be like, ah, I sat with Jason Manzikas. Good guy. Good guy. You know, good guy. But you know what? We didn't really get into it at the very end. Tricky. He's a tricky guy. Didn't get interesting until the end. We talked about music. We talked about this, that, and the other. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. He's okay. No, you, that's what I would say to my producer <laughs> right after the show. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't intro you like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, no, I, uh, I, I have the same issue. Like you know, having these conversations in here. Yeah, I don't have a fucking social life. Yeah, you know, I mean, my chicks. You know, she's painting over there. We sure. go out to eat, and it's okay. Well, I but never like, see you around except at music shows, which I like. You well, know? yeah, I go to some music shows yeah. when I get tickets or I'm invited, but sure. I don't make way to do it. But like, you know, like I get to the point where people don't ask me to go to things mm -hmm. really. And I guess there are premieres and things I should go to, but Why? I don't, I don't know. But I used to go out more to the clubs and stuff. And then like lately I've just been like, I, I, I think I'm through the woods with that shit. None of it's, I mean, you should go to what you want to go to. I just don't always know what that is. And the, and the, and the sure. dread will paralyze me. Because like for me, I'm like, if I want to see a movie early, yeah. I'll go to the premiere if right. I can. Yeah. You know, just to be like, because I want to see that movie. Well, I like, just saw yours on the screener. Yeah, great. Yeah. By the way, great. Yeah. You know, by the, thank you for watching it. Yeah. You know, in and of itself, yeah. you know, a feat uh, to get people to watch stuff. But uh, there's also just too much. There's too much, but also like that's the big problem. Like, don't you ever ask And LA is a home-based life. No, I know. I know that. Yeah, I was just in New York, and I but I get exhausted there too. And I'm I do, I travel around the same four blocks, yeah. in same New York, restaurants, the same fucking all restaurants. Yep. And I and I'm beating myself up now because now do you I'm go like, up when you're out there. I do sometimes, but I didn't this last time because I've been on the road for months and I just shot a special. And there's yeah. some part of me that I want to try to feel like I don't have to do it. Sure. And I don't know, like I don't and know. It can that, be all of it. Like you don't have right. to participate in all of it. Right, you know, in terms of what you're saying about uh, going to premieres or going to the parties, or I don't blah, go. Blah, blah, blah. No, Who cares? no one asks me to go. No one invites but me to fucking dinner. Nobody asks anybody to go. Everybody's just like, I gotta go to things. I want to go to there. I, I always feel like there's a list. Oh my god, this is so funny. I love it that we are still what not <laughs> believing that people want us around. You're just you're doing exactly what I just said, which yeah. is like, are you mad at me? What you do it? Yeah, I All do right. it too. Of like. Should I feel insulted that I wasn't invited to X, Y, or Z? Yeah, and or then it, you don't want to go to begin with. Yeah, like, I don't. And then because I will say that sometimes to like my manager, who's a good friend of mine, or something, I'll be like, "Is it weird that I wasn't invited to this, that, or yeah, the other?" Yeah, and she'll be like, "Do you want to go to it? I'm sure we can call." And and right, I'll be like, "That's a thing. No, I don't want to go to it. I just feel like, oh, then you should realize I have been invited or well, not? Well, then you start to realize like all those people are just sort of like, I need to go to like, that. We're middle aged men. Like we should not care about that. I don't know." Like we're not I'm only, very close to not caring. Also, not only I'm, are we middle-aged men and we shouldn't care. Like we, we're doing plenty. Yeah, yeah. We're plenty busy. busy. We're plenty. We're doing plenty. I'm on the precipice of not giving a fuck. Great. You? Great. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and certainly about the, like um, social kind of uh, nonsense like that. Do you know what you like to do like outside of work? Yeah, I'm like a real creature of habit in that sense. Like I really, I want to do, but it's very like if especially if it's like I'm going to New York. 
I want to go to the record stores that I want to go to. Like no, I, yeah, I have I like do that errands too. I do to that run too. Almost. I do that too. Um, and I just want to walk restaurants, around. Yeah, restaurants. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, I've got all those things. Yeah. stores that I want to buy. But clothing, it's comforting, right? But then, super. It's like it's all um, soothing. Right, but then out of the box, I'm sort of like I want to go Lincoln Center. I yeah, did one ex- one experience there years ago where I just stepped in and just saw a symphony. I didn't know nothing great. about it. Same but happened I, to me with, and you had her on your show. I heard something about Annie Baker's play, The Flick. Right. And so I happened to be in New York and was like, I'm going to go see that. Like, we gotta and do- so I went and like my mind was blown. Uh, the- I became obsessed with her. Right. That's the thing we got to keep doing is blowing our minds, I guess. Well, that's and that is what's hard about, I think, about Los Angeles versus New York is New York makes it very easy for you to like just do a thing uh, right. like truly like improvise your day and night. Like that's why I love New York because it's you right. Can, you don't go to like three or four places and you get there and you're like, why is that person still hanging around? Is there <laughs> someone I tell that person to go home? Oh, so I get, I can... get that guy out of here. <laughs> really? Okay. Is this I what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That doesn't happen in New York. <laughs> no, no. But like in LA, you really are like limited. Mm. You're in a night or a weekend. You're maybe doing two things. How's the meditation working? It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I, I it's on me. Yeah. It's on me to do it more. When was the last time you went to the doctor? Oh, recently. Oh. Uh, I was out. just. Uh, I go. I go to the doctor constantly. Oh. Oftentimes, so that he can be like, "You're fine. It's nothing." Isn't that weird? Now, like, I know where that comes from with me. Like, I like. I don't. I, did your parents not make you feel better? Uh, here's what it is for me and I, I think this is what, uh, what, in this respect this is what it is for me is and forgive me you know for talking about this food allergy again but I think because I was raised so acutely aware of my own mortality yeah because it was so present I never felt in, invincible I never was a what, child you had, like you if you ate an egg you'd die if I ate Anything that has egg in it. If I eat pasta, if I eat bread, if I eat anything for breakfast, if I eat anything that has egg as an ingredient, I'll die. I have the same allergy to eggs that people have to like almonds, bee, bee stings, or oh. nuts, or whatever. Really, like your throat will close. Yeah, I, like EpiPen in my bag, like anaphylaxis, the whole thing. And as a result, like very like parents very afraid of for me, and very afraid to like let go of right, me. Right, Made me right. very. Not trusting of people, not tr- like very like fear based kind of like if you leave this house, don't eat anything anybody gives you. Right. Don't don't believe anybody that tells you it doesn't have egg in it. Like very like rigid. My right. pediatrician, the, the pediatrician was like it was all fear based. Yeah, you will die. I I remember him very vividly being like, I had a boy who had your same allergy and he wanted to have a piece of pizza and he ate it and he died. <laughs> And I remember so vividly being the piece of pizza because I was like, I like pizza. Yeah. I want to eat pizza. How'd you (laughs) You know you liked it? Um, Because there was a place in my town that didn't have egg in the pizza. Anyway, um, but I think for me, like that idea of the incredible, how vulnerable I was made me feel like doctors know all the answers and I'm, I'm, I'm just fundamentally weak and fragile. Right. And as a result, if this is possible... Maybe everything's possible. Right. So I will like read an article or hear an NPR story about like a meningitis outbreak. Yeah. And I'll text my doctor and be like, do I need to be worried about this? Do you manifest symptoms? Constantly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I'll tie things together. Yeah. Once I notice one thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll systematically sure. go sure. like top to bottom and be like, yeah. what else is up? Yeah. What yeah. else is up? It's all connected. Yeah. And then you can go connect the dots on and, the Google. Yep. Or or fine. the biggest mistake was. Biggest mistake was my doctor let me have his cell phone number yeah. so I can text him. Oh. 
my doctor who upon first meeting him as I was going through all the medical issues that I've had through my life looked up in the middle of it and goes wow you really got a bum unit yeah. <laughs> he goes and then he was the same doctor as a friend of mine who was like and my friend at one point goes I don't think he should have said this to me but he, I was like hey you're uh, you're also seeing Jason Manzukas, and yeah. the doctor goes oh yeah that guy's got so many problems he should be dead by now I'm shocked he's still alive and Rob was like, I don't think you should be saying that to other people. But it's mental issues, right? You no, know? physical, like real physical stuff. You do? Yeah. I mean, uh, like various, but like, right. yeah, you know, just stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, so you're in a constant state of panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the verge of a constant state of panic. Yeah. You know, I'm in like a medium right state there. of panic. It's always right there. It's like though. a full glass and like everything is just hovering to like, Pour but, more but, into but it. But all it takes is a, you know, is a pimple or yep. something on your skin. Oh, or, my God. <laughs> the frequency ringing with which... The, yeah, ringing in the ear. The frequency with which I go to my dermatologist to be like, what is this? Yeah. What is this? Oh. Is this skin cancer? Yeah. Is, what's going on? Yeah. And that she's like, it's a pimple or it's a hair follicle. Right. Well, I don't know. Like, you know, I was able to sort of get that shit in check somehow because I it, my my the core of it for me was, was, was not the same as yours. I don't know. How do you think you get that in check? Don't know. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Improvise, right? yeah, and that and truly, like that's like trying to be more, allow for more of a present improv improvised narrative in how I live my life yeah. is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, but it's it it goes against everything that I've built. Yeah, structurally. because it's, it's really long form. Yeah, it's it's like the show's hopefully not going to end for a long time. <laughs> exactly, and the connections are going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, you just, you just don't know where they're going to come from. <laughs> who the players are. Well, it was great talking to you. This was a delight. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. So that was lovely. I really like that guy. I don't feel like playing guitar today because I'm hot, I'm sweaty, I've done two interviews, and I've done this today. I'm, I'm a little shattered. All right? Boomer lives! Boomer lives!